imagine that you've got a company where the, the person who owns it has just got this really unique way of thinking about something or solving problems or creating something or there's something that is the magic of the business. We want to remove everything else around it. So we want to make it so that all of their work time is just creating their art and not managing people or doing anything else. Hey, what's up, you guys? My name is Mikko Kershawski, and welcome to episode 158 of That Remote Life Podcast, where we hear from location-independent entrepreneurs and professionals so you can learn to quit the cubicle and live life on your terms. Today, I'm so excited to introduce you to Jody Cook, an entrepreneur, author, course creator, and competitive powerlifter. Jody is the author of the new book, The 10-Year Career, which lays out a framework for entrepreneurs to take them from beginner to selling their business, what you can expect across that journey, and what you should be focusing on in each stage. And on this topic, Jody is speaking from experience because she wrote this book while she was in the process of selling her social media management agency, which was a seven-figure exit. Jody has written a number of other books, including a series focused on raising entrepreneurial children, and she is a frequent contributor to Forbes, where she writes on the topic of entrepreneurship. During this wide-ranging conversation, Jody and I discuss how she's able to do so many different things at such a high level, why she sold her business, and the framework behind her new book, The 10-Year Career why writing is such a powerful practice for entrepreneurs, how to write for publications like Forbes, and much, much more. One quick note that I'd like to make regarding Jody's book. You can find a link to pre-order it in the show notes, but her book is actually out right now as you're listening to this, but only in the UK. It won't be out in the US and abroad until November of this year. That's 2022 if you're listening to this later on, but... If you want to get your hands on the book right now, which you absolutely should, you can use a VPN to purchase the book in Kindle form using Amazon UK. Before we jump into the interview, however, make sure you subscribe to my newsletter, Remote Insider, where every Monday I share the most important developments in the areas of remote work, online business, tech, and the digital nomad lifestyle. It has been called mandatory reading by other subscribers, and if you enjoy this podcast, I guarantee you will also love being a Remote Insider subscriber. You can subscribe to that at thatremotelife.com forward slash remote insider, and that's remote insider, all one word, no dashes. Also, I'd like to thank Safety Wing for sponsoring the show. I will tell you a bit more about the awesome things they're working on later in this episode. As always, if you enjoy this episode, share it on Twitter or Instagram and tag me at Mitkoka, M-I-T-K-O-K-A, or send it to a friend you think will enjoy it. And while you're there, give me a follow as well. I've been really ramping up my Twitter content, and I'd love to connect with you over there. Finally, if you haven't left a review already, please consider leaving one wherever you listen to podcasts. I would greatly appreciate that. But all right, you guys, without further ado, let's dive into this wide-ranging conversation with Jody Cook. All right, Jody, welcome to the podcast. I am so excited to have you here. How are you doing? Hey, I'm great. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. So uh, 
you have a new book out, which uh, we're very uh, excited. Uh, we, we can talk about it uh, today. It's called The 10-Year Career, uh, and I'm very excited to dive into that. Uh, you're uh, an amazing writer, by the way. I mean, I've, I've read some of your stuff on like Forbes, and I know you write for a bunch of different publications, but I didn't realize just how much like like written content you have. I didn't know that you had all of these uh, these other books that you've done in the past. I'm excited to dive into that as well. But bef- before we talk about that, uh, I always have to ask when I have people on here who are fellow digital nomads or at least, at least nomadically minded, where are you uh, located at the moment? At the moment, I'm in London in the UK because I'm promoting my book. But at the, in the rest of the year, I'm in Copenhagen, Lisbon, Bangkok and New Zealand. Is that like your normal, like, do you always hit those same spots or are those just like your favorites? I haven't actually been to any of those places before. They, I don't have a normal. There is no normal because the world is so big that I hate the idea of going back to places year upon year. There are some places that I've visited more than once, but I like finding new places. And and I, I love feeling like you could live somewhere and then not living there at the same time. I feel like that's when you fit, that's when you have one a place when you feel like yes I could live here but then you still move on you know that you could always go back to it yeah my wife and I keep doing this thing where like we'll go to these places like oh my god this place is so amazing we need to come back here like what if we had an apartment here and then like you find the next place and then you kind of like move on but there's always this like period when you get to a place that you like where you're like should we get an apartment here like should we you know like stay here long term so uh I, I totally understand that so let's talk a little bit about because you mentioned this let's start off here i'm very curious obviously you've, you've written uh, a lot of things a lot of different books uh you've done a ton of different articles like i said for like forbes and a bunch of other uh, publications and this is something that i uh, I'm very curious about because I don't know, I feel like we all think that we're going to write a book at some point. Like everyone is like, Oh, I'd love to write a book at some point. Why did you decide to, to actually work with a publisher for this book instead of doing the self publish route? Like what was your, your thinking process through that? What were the pros and cons and why did you, you know, choose to go the published route or the publisher route, I should say. Out of all the books I've written, I have published some, I've self-published some, and I've hybrid published some, which is a bit different. But I think the decision as to whether to publish or self-publish comes down to what you want to get out of the book. And there are ones that I've published before or self-published before where it's like, I just want to make money out of this book. And there have been other ones where I think, I just want to work with this author with this book, and then they've bought their own publisher. So that's where we've gone. But this one, it's about impact it's just about getting it as far and wide as possible it's not necessarily about making money out of the book so I was thinking I want to join up with the biggest publisher possible in order to stand the best chance of the widest distribution and often something that comes into that is translation rights so I've got self-published books that have been translated into different languages but I had to handle the translation conversation and I just don't want to deal with that. So the fact that the publisher does that is a really big tick in the box. And I also really like discovering books that I've written in bookshops and in airports because that feels kind of magical and you don't always get that with self-published books. When you say translation, do you mean in like other languages? Yes. So how does that work? Do you, when you publish the book, because I, I think that's like fascinating. Like I, I imagine like there's this next level of, I totally agree that it'd be amazing to see your book in like a, a 
an airport. But I feel like the next most amazing level would be like seeing it in another language for some reason. How does that work? Does your book have to hit a certain number of copies sold before it gets like translated to like Japanese or something? Or is that like baked into the deal initially? I don't think the stipulation is number of copies sold. I just think it's that your book has has gotten onto the radar of a publishing house in a different country. So some of the self-published books that I've done, these are a, a series of kids' books that are designed to introduce entrepreneurial role models to six to nine-year-olds. They are also in Arabic. And that was because an Arabic publisher who was entrepreneurially minded, who had been doing some research, approached us and said, can we publish these exact books in Arabic? And then we came up with the deal and we signed that off and they bought a certain amount that they were allowed to publish and print. But without without self-publishing, you do it through the publisher and then the publisher just just sorts all of it out for you. And it just happens. It's pretty random. Like one of my books is is in Hungarian and Thai and Korean and it's just because they happen to get in touch with the publisher and it happens to be someone at that that publishing agency in the different country has decided that this would be a good book obviously the more you sell the more likely you are to get on the radar of those people but it's not like this copies this number of copies means Japanese or whatever else that's so cool uh so as people are listening, they might be realizing that uh, you do a lot of things. And this is like one of the things that like, I am very, I'm, I'm this sort of person. Like I want to do a lot of things. I'm very curious about a whole bunch of different things. So when I find people who are able to do a lot of different things and do them really, really well and be successful at them, I am so envious and I I just want to know everything. So I want to start there. Like people, you know, you're obviously writing about entrepreneurship. You talked about the fact that you have, you have kids books. Uh, We haven't talked about the fact yet that you just sold, uh, I think a year ago, but fairly recently, your social media agency uh, for uh, over seven figures. And then uh, on top of that, because that's not enough, you're also an accomplished power lifter. So how do you manage to do all of those things at such a high level? Because to me, that's that's so impressive. And, and, and just to kind of like, you know, go a little bit deeper, you actually wrote an article of yours that I read uh, that you titled Five Factors That Hold Entrepreneurs Back. And two of the points were, you know, point number two in that article is lack of clear direction. And point five is being distracted. And to me, those are very interesting points because I feel like, not that you don't have clear direction, but you obviously have a lot of different directions and having all of these things can be sort of distracting. So how do you manage to do that? Like, how are you able to do all of these different things so well and at such a high level? Great question. (laughs) I never think about it as being distracting. And I think it's because my big mission that's always in my head is to discover what I'm capable of and help other people do the same. And so the discovering what I'm capable of arm of this is being a really great entrepreneur and being a really great powerlifter and then writing about it. So the writing about it is more the helping other people do the same. And actually writing and training are both outlets for running a business. And I know this because when I sold my business and went through that inevitable existential crisis that lots of post-exit entrepreneurs do I thought that I would want to just be a writer and just be a powerlifter and it turns out that was boring (laughs) 
so boring because because writing about stuff when you haven't got material when you're not running a business is like it's really really difficult I'd never had writer's block before and then when I went down to write articles about entrepreneurs because that's what I write for Forbes about I just had nothing it was like well I don't run a business anymore so what is there like where is my muse there's not there's not problems to solve and fires to put out so so that was that one. And then training started off as just keeping keeping fit and staying healthy. And then as lots of type A personality entrepreneurs probably can relate to, it's not just okay to just go to the gym. It's like, no, I have to turn this into something that I compete in and something that I take really seriously. And there have to be metrics and numbers and I have to be improving at this all the time. So I'd say powerlifting was just a hobby that just went too far. And now it's a very serious hobby. Yeah, I uh, I've recently started training more intensely again, and it's also this like funny thing where I, I I got my not I didn't get like a DEXA scan, but I went to a nutritionist to actually like uh, measure me and give me all the measurements and this kind of stuff, and she was like, "Why are you doing this?" And I was like, "Cause I want to know the numbers." And like you know, she's like, "Why? You know, like you you look you know you look fine, you're healthy. Like why are you like needing these numbers?" I'm like, "I don't know. Like why don't like why wouldn't you want these numbers? <laughs> like you know, so that in a month when I measure them again, and it was so funny to realize that I don't think most people are like that. They're like, "All right, I look good in the mirror. It's good for me. You know, whatever." Uh, but yeah, I, I, I totally understand that. So you mentioned outlets and, and I'm curious about that because were you looking for a way while you were running the agency to kind of like, um, like refresh or, or in some way, like, like think about something else? Like, is that what you mean by outlets? I guess I mean an outlet for working out the mess in my head and turning it into something productive because lots of the articles that I've written for Forbes started off as journal entries. They started off as me getting getting home on an evening or just just being like, oh, I'm struggling with something. How do I work through this? Opening a fresh page in my journal and just free writing about it. And then that turned into how to run a business without it running you, how to stop your smartphone ruining your life and all these different how-to articles, which is pretty much just me figuring out how to do it. And often writing in listicles. So often I write in my journal in listicles and who knew they would turn into really good articles. So it's like mess in your head, turn it into a journal entry, realize that this would probably help quite a lot of other people and then turning it into an article that starts to rank on Forbes and starts to actually help other people. So some of the feedback I get is crazy. It's like, I'll get messages that say, it's like you were talking directly to me or it's like you were in my head. And it's like, yeah, I know, because I think entrepreneurs have all the same five problems and we're just all trying to talk to each other to find out the same, find out those ways of solving them. How did the writing for Forbes come about? Because that's like, I feel like everyone would like to be able to say like, I write for X very well respected magazine or publication. So how, how are you able to start writing for Forbes? And if anyone that's listening is, is interested in that, what sort of tips would you give to them for, you know, how to actually get into that? It was a long, long process. It started off by writing a series of kids books, the ones that I told you about earlier, the Clever Tyke series, and then securing sponsorship from a bank to gift them to every primary school in the United Kingdom. So that was 24,000 primary schools. And then that got me and my husband a place on the 30 under 30 list. Then I got invited to an event, went down to that, found an editor who said they were introducing their contributor platform. And I said, get me on that. Please, 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 nice editor, get me on that platform. And then I just followed her up 
probably every week for about six months, <laughs> just without fail, just set recurring task, recurring task, email Alex, tell her something new, send her a funny link, stay on her radar, make sure she remembers me so that when they do launch that platform, I'll be, I'll be there. So that's what happens. So it was a lot of, like with everything that I do, it's a lot of persistence and a lot of tiny, tiny actions that then result in something really big. So where did this idea, because uh, I, I'm very fascinated by these children's books, because, um, and I feel like we're jumping all over, but I, this is how my brain works, and I, I have a feeling this is how your brain works too, so this is what the interview <laughs> is going to be like. So uh, tell me about these these children's books, because as far as I understand, you don't have kids, right? Uh, so how do you, uh, where did the idea for this come from? Like, why did you decide to write a series of books on this topic? So you are right, I don't have kids, but when I was a kid, I had parents who were entrepreneurs, Mm. or one was, my mom was. And so when I was younger, I was familiar with what someone who worked for themselves did. And so it meant that when I left the education machine, starting a business was not a big deal. It was like, I'm going to go start a business now, and I'll use getting a job as my plan B. Whereas what I noticed was that everyone else around me, and especially all the people that did my university degree, which was business management, they just wanted to get jobs. They just wanted to go and work for Deloitte and PwC and KPMG, and they wanted to be on graduate schemes, and they wanted to be consultants. And I thought, I would rather stick pins in my eyes than do that. But why is that? And it's all because I had this entrepreneurial role model. So there was lots of other thinking that happened around this. Well, how do we inspire people to want to start their own business? But the result of that was that me and my husband decided that we would write these role models into stories and we came up with the idea on a plane as lots of the best ideas happen and then we thought how hard can it be we'll just write these stories we'll just write stories for kids we'll get them illustrated we'll turn them into books and then we'll start selling them and so that's that's kind of what we did and then they yeah they spark the imagination the audience renews every year because kids grow up and then they they are bought by schools and they're bought by parents as well. And then we, we see the difference in, in kids. So some of the feedback that we get is that it's like flicking a switch in someone's head and they go from feeling defeated and having tantrums to feeling resourceful and being able to, to work through different problems that happen in their, in their elementary school lives. Mm. Have you heard of uh, synthesis? I have not. So I think you'd really dig this. Definitely check this out afterwards. But it's uh, it's based on the uh, school that uh, Elon Musk started inside of Tesla and SpaceX, because I guess he was like, you know, you know, they want to make sure that all their employees have have very good uh, education for their kids. But he was like thinking that this education system isn't like really doing what it should be doing. So he made, this is like another thing. Like he, not only does he have all these like different companies, he also started an education company and it was called Ad Astra. And it's all about like gameplay and like all this kind of interesting stuff. And someone who worked for him in that division was like, Hey, I feel like more people should have this. Can we spin this up into a company? And so they did. And I have watched their like videos of like what doing the school looks like. And it makes me so angry because I want to do that because that's like, why, why was this not around when I was a kid? Like it would just been amazing. So uh, I think you should definitely, uh, definitely check that out. What was, um, what was the Forbes 30 under 30 experience like? Because one thing that I've heard and, and I'm curious to hear what your experience of that was, was that 
great. Like you get some award, you can put it on your, you know, your, you know, like profile or whatever. And, and that's fine and dandy. But like one of the things that I've heard about it is that the network is really fantastic and that you can get a lot of benefits out of that. So what is your experience with that then? Yeah, it's amazing. It's, it's a really cool network. I guess not that many people have it and there's amazing really cool people on the list and it's just an excuse to get in touch with someone and I'm always whenever I'm trying to get in touch with new people I'm always looking for what is that thing that we have in common and when it's Forbes they're under 30 yeah it's it's really cool the main benefit actually is that people think I'm under 30 because (laughs) because of just having that in places but I think I was on the list about five years ago now and now I'm 33 so as long as I keep that there everyone will just think I'm under 30 forever uh, it's it's like you're official. You're never going over thirty. I love that. Well, I have one year left, so I'm I have to get on this list now and like you know like solidify it. <laughs> Otherwise, uh, I'm yeah I'm shit out of luck. Uh, I wanna I wanna talk a little bit about. So you, like I said, you you have blog posts on your own website, but then you write for Forbes and a bunch of different magazines uh, and online publications. And that's something that I almost like am constantly playing with in my head. Is like, should I be writing on my own blog? Should I be writing for other publications? And so how do you think about that? Like what articles go on your blog? What articles go uh, like for a publication? What's the difference there? And how do you think through that? I'm really glad you asked this because I think a lot about this. And the last two talks I gave were about being a prolific producer and how to become this content creation powerhouse while also running a business. Because let's face it, we're not going to just sit there and just write and record and do everything for hours on end. So I thought I made a little formula. And it's ideation, execution, delegation. And what I think people often downplay or don't do well is the ideation phase. And it's because they turn up to their blank page and they expect to be able to write stuff just out of nowhere without, like they just expect that their head's just gonna come up with the stuff. But actually that's not how it happens at all. The best way of of doing that and having good stuff to write about is never being anywhere without a pen and paper. And every time that someone suggests a book or an article or an idea or says something funny or says a quote that just really resonates with you, write it down and have this as your ideas bank that just sits there and just, it's kind of in your, um, it's in your default mode network all the time, but you know, it's there on a piece of paper for you to go back to. And then the execution phase, what I would encourage people to do is find their law of least effort way of creating raw material. And the law of least effort doesn't mean that you don't put any effort in. It's that it means that you find what feels effortless and everyone will have a different way of producing effortlessly. So for me, it's writing. For someone else, it might be talking to camera. For someone else, it might be talking into a microphone or painting or doodling or whatever it might be. But find your art and then combine it with your ideation to just produce for like hours on end. But really, you don't have to do it for hours on end. You have to do it for an hour a week and find a non-negotiable slot where you do it. And then the goal here is that you come up with shed loads of raw material that then after that you work out what to do with. So to answer your question about what goes as a Forbes post, what goes as a blog post, what goes as a video, et cetera, et cetera, it's not always me that makes that decision. It's whoever I am delegating stuff to that might chop stuff up into smaller things, chop chop other things up into tweets, say, oh, you should make a video out of this bit or um, you know, whatever else, there's there's other things that happen to the stuff that I've created. But the most important thing is that I'm producing in the most effortless way possible. So when you say who you're delegating to, like, is that like you actually have someone 
who is like an assistant or an editor of some sort that you send all of your work to in one medium. And then they're the ones that say like, okay, this goes in your, on your blog. You should reach out to Forbes to write this article for them. Is, is, is that what you mean? I say with my Forbes article, articles, I just log in and post. So a lot of those ones, I'll have the idea for the title and then I'll be writing it from start to finish in one go because it's been kind of playing around in my head for a little while. But then what my content assistant would do is take out paragraphs of it and say, oh, this would make a good blog post and then take out lines of it and say, oh, these would make good tweets and then make other different scripts and ideas for some of the videos that I create and send over Instagram so it's like the reams and reams of content happen but then someone else can decide how they will best be suited to the other platforms I wanted to take a quick break and tell you about our sponsor for today's episode safety wing as a longtime digital nomad and remote worker I can tell you from experience that travel medical insurance is extremely important the more time you spend abroad the more you increase your chances that eventually something will happen maybe you will get sick and need to see a doctor or you're going to crash your scooter in Bali and have to get a cast. Either way, figuring out how to pay for that procedure in a foreign country is not what you're going to want to deal with at that moment. And that's why I love SafetyWing. Their services are designed for people like you and me. Their Nomad Insurance is a global travel medical insurance with emergency coverage across 185 countries. The remote health package, on the other hand, provides remote companies and employees with global health insurance. Not to mention that SafetyWing is also funding the Plumia Project, which is working to establish the first ever country on the internet. So if you're still nomading unprotected, what are you doing? Head over to safetywing.com and find the insurance package that's right for you. And also, consider using the affiliate link in the show notes, which will directly support me in continuing to produce this podcast. So thanks again to SafetyWing for sponsoring us. And now back to the episode. I just saw this today. There was this really great tweet. I don't know if you know who Julian Shapiro is on on, on Twitter. He's got like he actually has a really great like uh, workout like ebook thing that he did that I actually used for a while. And I was like, this is very good. And he's like a startup guy, <laughs> so I was like, you know, uh, works. Uh, but he talked about uh, this concept of the creativity faucet, which uh, he said that Ed Sheeran and Neil Gaiman, who I know is a name, but I don't really know what he does. Um, maybe I'm aging myself there a little bit, but they have the same creativity process. And the idea is that instead of them just sitting there and saying like, okay, I'm going to come out with a blockbuster song right now. What they do is they're constantly creating because they almost have to, or they're constantly writing and producing because they have to get like the crap out of the faucet so that the clear water can come out. And that really reminded me of what you were talking about is like, Hey, if you sit down and you write every single week, maybe not everything is going to be a banger, but eventually you're essentially like creating enough that the bangers are going to come out of that. So uh, I thought that was, that was very interesting. If anyone's interested in writing for Forbes, uh, because I think that that can give people a lot of exposure, right? Like if you don't have attention yet on your own blog or you don't have a a big social media audience, leveraging another platform's audience in that way can be very helpful to get your ideas out there. So how would you suggest to maybe someone, I mean, I know that you had a, a, a one way of getting there through kind of like your story, but if somebody was to say like, hey, I really want to write for Forbes, what would be your tips for them in order to get into those publications as a writer, as a contributor? I would suggest first come up with your way of writing on your own platforms and do that, become a prolific producer. Then I would suggest reach out to different media outlets and see if you can 
contribute like one article as a one-off or see if you can team up with a few journalists and get them to include you maybe with a feature piece and then I would approach Forbes after that I would build up your own bank of lots of stuff so that when you approach someone someone like Forbes or Entrepreneur or Inc or Fasco there's quite a few of them with different contributor models you've got all this stuff first because they don't want someone who they can't find online or who they can't find examples of their writing they want your profile in an ideal world your profile is bigger than theirs and then it makes you a no-brainer so I would build your own house and then get other people to come come to you and nudge them in the right direction I've actually got classes on all of this stuff on Skillshare so um it's at jodiecook.com forward slash Skillshare but there's two in particular one's about being a prolific producer and one's about how to secure coverage in media outlets but they're just free classes to to help with this kind of stuff because I get asked it quite a lot. Yeah, I love this. Uh, I didn't know that you did classes. And then in researching this, I saw that you did classes. I'm like, oh, she's also uh, a course creator that, you know, like add that to the list, you know. But I, I love this idea of like when you learn something, creating a course about it. It's something that I've always like fantasized as well of like being able to do is like, okay, great. Like I'm going to package whatever I've learned through this experience and put it together in a course. I think it's such a great, especially with like platforms like Skillshare or Udemy where you don't necessarily have to bring the people to to the course, right? You're like, hey, I've learned this thing. Whoever's interested can come find this marketplace. I think that's such a great idea. Uh, let's chat a little bit about the book. Uh, why write this book? What was your what were you hoping to achieve? What do you hope that people who read this book are going to be able to achieve with what you've written? I wrote this book when I was waiting for the sale of my agency to complete. And I was so impatient and I was dealing with due diligence and I was dealing with lawyers. And if you've ever tried to hurry up a lawyer, you will feel my frustration. But I thought, I've got so much energy here. Rather than just channel it into annoying the hell out of the buyer, why don't I put it somewhere else? And because I didn't want to get super back involved in my agency because I was just about to sell it. I did definitely didn't want to annoy anyone. And I couldn't have been training anymore. So that's when I thought I'm going to write a book here. So I thought I would look back over the 10 years of running the agency and try and pull out the different lessons and the different things that had happened and try and almost write advice to my former self so that it would help someone else who wanted to do what I did, which is start and build a company and then make and then have have made work a choice by the end of the 10 years and then that's when the framework came about and then it was like wow this is this is a thing this is an actual framework that other people can follow and then it seemed this logical way of taking someone through being very in their business to being out of their business and being able to travel and then have a saleable entity that they can then sell or step back from so I guess advice to my former self, but that's always the way. That's the that's the stuff that resonates the most. So I'm really happy it's out there in the world now. So we're gonna start uh, because you know it would be crazy if we started from you know phase one to phase two. I, I'm just gonna jump straight to the end and kind of talk about that. What? Why did you decide to sell the company? Because it it makes it sound you know it sounds like you were pretty removed at this point. Uh, perhaps you weren't you didn't have to put that much time in the office, quote unquote why sell? How did you know that it was time to sell the company instead of, you know, just sort of like continuing to to manage it and using it as a cash flow? You are totally right that I wasn't super involved and I didn't have to put that much energy into it. So for five years, kind of the middle of my 10-year career, that's when I was spending one month away and two months back in Birmingham, UK and doing that on repeat and then picking a different destination. So for 
being away for four months of every year because the team were not remote. So I was kind of semi-remote, but the team weren't. And that was all great. And I probably could have done that forever. And if COVID hadn't hit, I'd probably still be doing it now. But what happened in March 2020 was, as you know, shit hit the fan. And it was kind of scary. And you can have all these processes and all these documents and all this stuff that your team knows how to do. But when that happens, there isn't a plan. So I get a call. So in one week during March 2020, we lost about 25% of our client base. And 25% is not huge, but it's it's pretty big because we were a decent size. And um, all our clients who were in travel, hospitality and events were just having a horrible time and it was passing on to us. So that's when I went from being quite far removed to being very, very involved. And we went from hardly ever emailing our database to emailing them every day we went from never running running webinars to running them every day I went from not really doing much to being the most involved founder ever and from doing that and from getting all the team really on board and I had some I've got some amazing team members who just worked incredibly and were super resourceful we managed to grow the company back to normal size and then a further 20 percent in four months so that was like the craziest four month period of of my life but once we got to the end of it around um around kind of around summertime that was when I took a long hard look in the mirror and thought what do I want to do next and the the third stage of the 10-year career framework is scrutinize and I was super scrutinizing what shall I do so the options I thought I had were go back into the execute phase which is phase one and try and build this company bigger and do more with it it could be stay and scrutinize, do what I was doing before, lifestyle design, lifestyle design first, travel for one month and every three, maybe even more, or it was proceed to exit. And I made the decision to exit based on the strength of the team and of thinking, I think this team is capable of more than being the people who run the business that I see as a lifestyle design kind of company. That was what it all came down to. And I thought if I if I sell great, because I never have to be tapped on the shoulder again if there's another pandemic. And also it kind of removes a ceiling for the rest of my team. So that's when I decided and that's when I started the process and started talking to people who knew how to sell agencies. Yeah, I think uh, from speaking, I've never had the experience of selling a business, but I- from speaking with people who have sold businesses, and I've had the chance now to do that with with several people, I can totally understand why, even if you're like, hey, I can just keep this and keep making money, there is this idea of like cashing out, right? Like taking your chips off the table. And, and I recently heard someone say, uh, who's in the crypto space, and they said, listen, like if you have, if you're, you know, like 23 uh, you just happen to to get lucky or, you know, you've made it quote unquote big in the, in the crypto space. Like you have an NFT that's like worth a million dollars or $2 million, $3 million. And even if you think that that could be 10 cash out because the amount of like, you're going to immediately be almost in like a different category of life and, and the uh, level of thinking that you can achieve having that sort of like weight off your shoulders can be like really beneficial. Uh, and I know a, a mutual friend of ours, uh, Dan kind of talks about that as well in terms of like when they sold their business, uh, Dan Andrews from Tropical MBA, they, they were like, you know, like we sold and now we looking back, it could have been way bigger, but it was the right decision at the time. So how has like your thinking changed? now that you don't have to like worry about the business or you've sort of you know at least like you don't have to worry about day-to-day sort of like running of a business or anything like that 
it's huge. One of the biggest things is that I can't get that tap on the shoulder. There's no one who can reach me at any point. And do you, you miss think, that at all? No, <laughs> no, not at all. Because I can imagine that you might miss it if you tied your self worth to being needed. Mm. If you if you tied your self worth to, to needing to answer questions or needing to you know help help out team members or clients, yeah, I can see that that you might miss that. But I mean, the upside is huge. So one of the things I always think about is, can every day feel like a Sunday? And it can when you sell your business. Every day feels like a Sunday, and it's it's pretty glorious. I think that taking the chips off the table is a really interesting point as well, and. It's, for me, it wasn't necessarily taking the chips off the table because I was fairly confident with the stability of the company and how it would go on. It was more about the tap on the shoulder and it was more about being truly free of the whole thing. And like you said, it did elevate life up. And it was just a, it was like you're on this new playing field because now you're a post-exit entrepreneur, you have sold a business, you, you can decide what you do next. And I've always thought a lot about designing my life anyway. So now I got to design my life on a new set of parameters, which was quite exciting. And I think the fact that you have this, all the writing that you do as well is very beneficial because, you know, it's not like all of a sudden you have nothing to do, which I think a lot of people find themselves in this idea of like, I'm retired. Okay. And and now what? Uh, A guy took a mini retirement um, a year and a half ago for, I said, I'm not going to work for like three weeks, which sounds like vacation, but I haven't had a vacation in, I don't know. I've never had a vacation. And like, I was like, okay, I'm going to take three weeks off and just do nothing. Cause I can. And by like day five, I was like, this is so, this is so boring. Like, what do you, what am I supposed to do with myself? You know, you can only go to the gym for such a long, like at one point the beach gets kind of boring. And I realized like you need something to, you know, do something to be active about. Um, Let's talk about the book some more. Uh, can you kind of summarize? So there's there's four phases that you talk about in, in the book. Can you just quickly go over them? And I know you've already kind of like, we've talked about some of them already, but if you can just kind of like structure them in terms of like one, two, three, four, what is what is the, the big picture? And then what are the phases uh, that the book discusses? So the four phases of the 10-year career framework are execute, systemize, scrutinize, and exit. And it's based a lot on this premise that some business advice is really good for some of these stages, but really bad for other stages. And if you took the wrong advice for your stage, you would end up frazzled and you wouldn't know what to do and you would probably lose momentum and you would probably just feel like giving up. But if you got the right advice for the stage that you were in, you would absolutely smash that stage and you would move on to the next one and you would be constantly progressing through your business. I think that team members and the people we hire often have that progress because we we give them appraisals we talk to them about their future we we do a lot to make sure that their career journey is defined but what about ours when's the last time we thought oh hang on am I actually progressing in my business or am I just having the same year 10 times and so many entrepreneurs are having the same year 10 times because they are stuck in execute so the book talks a lot about the framework but it opens by digging into the education conveyor belt and the career conveyor belt and talks about all these ways that we are kind of led in different directions and coerced into being normal 
so there's loads of examples where we we think we're choosing for ourselves but we're actually not we're just following the path expected of us and in order to have a tenure career or, or in order to live wherever you want to in the world or have work on your terms you need to reject a lot of the normal things that happen so it's a big kind of mind shift and then it goes into what am I capable of how do I set up a company in this way how do I grow my company in this way and then there's a huge section on lifestyle design and feeling retired even though you might not be and how to run a business without it running you and also live an extraordinary life alongside because we don't need to postpone it we can do it the whole time can we dive in a little bit further on uh, on that first part that you talked about uh, where, you know, we kind of feel like we are roped into being on this normal path because I think way more people than before kind of understand that because I think COVID was this sort of like, uh, like refresh moment for a lot of people. And like, you know, we've seen record numbers of people quitting or there's more and more businesses being started now than, than before statistically. So can you talk a little bit about that? Like, like just let's double click on that, on that concept. I always think about my friend Richard when I'm talking about this, because he one time was giving me his reasons or we could call them excuses, but I'll call them reasons, his reasons why he couldn't work out. He couldn't go to the gym. And he said, oh, no, it's really bad. The gym's like near, near my house. And by the time I get home from work, I'm really knackered. And the commute takes so long. Like it takes me ages to get there. And we're, we're really busy at the moment. And, you know, like sometimes I lose lose focus in the afternoon. And sometimes my team members need talking to like all, all this stuff that he was telling me about his normal work day, which all sounds very normal until you realize that Richard owns the business. So he could plan his life however he wants. There is nothing to say he needs to go into an office in central London for 9am and go back between five and six when everyone else is and miss the gym and queue up in the supermarket and all this stuff that he is doing because he owns the business. So it's like even when someone has chosen to live their work life a different way to get their own clients to build their own team, they're still subject to these normal ways of working. And it's not okay and so it's it's to dig it's to dig into that a little bit and it's to say well do you have to do this at this time or how about you surf this time arbitrage where you could do things at different times and get a first class experience rather than doing it when everyone else is doing and lots of different examples of where you can just think differently and have a much better life as a result of doing so Kind of like how you explain it is, hey, I'm, I'm giving you kind of like these different sections. Would you say this is something that people should, if someone's, you know, just getting started, you know, they're like, hey, I've, I've been thinking about starting a business. It's something that I want to like maybe start this year or next year. Uh, is this something they should read now in the beginning so they can kind of think about, uh, okay, this book or this course or this piece of content or whatever it may be is for the section that I'm in now. But this other book, even though it sounds very interesting, I should leave it for another phase. Is that kind of like what you're thinking with with, with the, the, the way the book is laid out? It's super useful for early stage entrepreneurs, but it's also useful for pre-entrepreneurs as well. I think it would be useful for a lot of later stage entrepreneurs who are still in execute who want to be further along and believe they should be because the amount of time that they've been running their business I think so just as an example so the execute phase is defined by you're busy you say yes you're seeing what works you're defining your product and your service and your customer avatar and how you reach them you're you're trying to get all this stuff in place for you to be able to prove that your business actually works and is needed so that you can start establishing it, start building it, and then you can move to systemizing all of it. 
So it's a very silly thing to do to systemize before you know what actually works because then you're just systemizing you're just being efficient without being effective so if a very early stage entrepreneur read the book or even a pre pre pre-entrepreneur read it they would be ready for this execute stage and so when everyone else is saying oh no you shouldn't you shouldn't work hard you should work smart or when everyone else is saying no you should sit on the beach or you should visualize or you should say no before you say that say yes they can say, no, this is wrong for my stage. I'm an execute. I'm saying yes. I'm seeing what works. I'm being busy. It's okay because it's there's a purpose to it. I'm trying to see what works so I can then move to stage two. That's the benefit I see. So they don't get confused, but also so they don't burn out because they don't think that this crazy execute stage is going to last forever because it doesn't have to. Yeah, I love that because I feel like there's this like constant um... – change in the zeitgeist or like the conversation of entrepreneurship where like five or six years ago it was like hustle and like you gotta be like you know like weekends like crush it you know all that kind of stuff and then i feel like it's kind of changed now and you have a lot of these conversations around like hey slow down like um you know maybe four day work weeks like you should be doing that and like if you're working more than five hours a day like you're not being effective and you know it, it takes and i agree with with both of those and it can be really hard to kind of say well, both are right and both are incorrect. So I really like that where you're saying in some stages, this is correct. In other stages, it's not correct. Uh, that's yeah. that's very interesting. What about people that, because um, I know people like this who maybe they don't want to sell the business. Maybe they don't want to systemize, right? Like you talked about, uh, you didn't, you were very happy about not being worried about being tapped on the shoulder and asked to do things. But there's some people who like, they love that, right? So what would you tell to them? Like, is there, is this just not the book for them? This is not the system for them because of their personality or, or is there still something that they can pick up from, from that? The people who want to be tapped on the shoulder or the people who want to do the stuff. If you ask them about what they actually wanted to do, it's probably not everything. It's probably not accounts payroll hr some other stuff but they probably get landed with it anyway so the goal here is not that everyone needs to be completely removed from their business that's not necessarily what the book's teaching but for people who i would i'm going to call these people artists because they have a role in the business but they are the artist and the challenge here is to get them to do what only they can do their art mm. And everything else should be systemized because imagine that you've got a company where the, the person who owns it has just got this really unique way of thinking about something or solving problems or creating something or there's something that is the magic of the business. We want to remove everything else around it. So we want to make it so that all of their work time is just creating their art and not managing people or doing anything else. So they could still do that in the systemized phase. And the way it talks you through it, it's like, write a list of all the processes that happen in your business and then work out how to delegate, outsource, eliminate, give them to someone else. But some of them you might want to keep and that's totally fine too. It's not like the book's going to say, no, you mustn't do anything in your business at all. It's like, let's let's make sure you are doing only what you can do, which is probably very little. And sometimes ego gets in the way of that. And sometimes you think that only you can do more, but actually it's a very small proportion of it. Let's talk a little bit about systemizing because we keep talking about that being the goal, right? Like you figure it out and then systemize it. But as somebody who used to be the head of operations at an agency, I know that that's a whole different beast on its own is like figuring out how to systemize things like correctly and, you know, making sure that, hey, I've systemized this, but like, is the system breaking? Is the system still working? <laughs> so what sort of yeah. tips do you have around that, around like 
systemizing well. And obviously somebody who ran an, you know, an agency that had people that were not remote, I feel like it's even more difficult. It's like even a step above that. So what are your tips around systemizing or like what sort of things do you think people get wrong when they try to systemize the operations? So the goal of systemizing is that your business works by default and breaks occasionally. And so many businesses are the other way around. And it's almost like they're just broken all the time or they're not working all the time or everything is case by case. And what I want to help people do is to have this default default way of working that just works. So your clients, you know when your clients are going to pay, you know how you're going to get clients, you know who does what. And it takes you as the owner out of firstly being used as Google because no one wants that, but how many business owners answer the same question and again and again and again and don't see a way out of it. But secondly means that you can scale the business because you can handle, you could handle a 10 times increase in clients because you've got these ways of handling all the like um, processing clients and customers through the business. So systemizing for me happened when I realized that I was well in the execute stage and I was running what I will affectionately refer to as the Jody show. It was where <laughs> everything was run by me, everything. I was the bottleneck for everything. It was almost like you can imagine someone just standing there and getting shown things and they have to say, yep, yeah, that's right. Or no, change that. And it's just, that was my whole day. It was like I needed to be everywhere all the time. It was the difference between that and wanting to just take a holiday. <laughs> and that was the that was the realization that systemizing needed to happen. So it was super simple. It was a four column Excel spreadsheet. And in column A went every single process that happened in my business. And there were about 60 different rows in the end. It was everything. It was like micro processes. In column B went who did it now, which at the time was easy because it was pretty much just me and all of them. In column C went who would do it in the future, which was either the name of someone I already had in my team. It was the job title as someone I was going to hire. It was a software maybe, or it was a company that I was going to outsource to, or it was just eliminate or stop doing because it was a stupid process that shouldn't have been done in the first place. And then column D was where I wrote the date. And that was my plan. That was what am I going to do by this date? And then it was a case of following those through in the order, creating a manual, giving it to someone else, training them, and then trusting them to do it, and then moving on to the next thing. In theory, it sounds very straightforward. In practice, it's very different. And another big hurdle to systemizing is that it probably won't make you money, but it might cost you money because you're hiring other people and because you're using software. But you have to see it as an investment because it will help you take on more work in the future and it will help free up your time so you can focus on your art or you can focus on just just thinking, just thinking, how am I going to grow my business or how am I going to reach my ultimate business goals? Um, so systemize is a very necessary phase, but hardly any businesses make it through it because it's just easier to hang out and execute. Yeah, and like one additional variable that I'll add to this is uh, the type of business that you run uh, and, and who your clients or customers are because it's something you need to think about, right? Like if this sounds, if you're listening to this, this sounds attractive, right? Like having a business that's systemized, that's something you should think about when you're building your business to make sure that it's a something that's easier to systemize than not. Because the business that I was working in, as an example, uh, our clients were HVAC like service businesses. So these are people who are 
you know, they don't like computers. Uh, they just got an iPhone kind of kind of thing. And one of the really difficult things that we had to do was like customer management, client management. We tried to systemize and they were like, no, we're not doing this. Like we're not going through this thing that's going to save us time. I just want to be able to call you or text you. And it was just like the hardest thing ever. And so uh, I do think that it's something that you should think about. And if you're in one of those situations, like are there other ways that you can productize to make it easier to systemize? I think, I think that that's a, a helpful thing. Uh, in in wrapping up, I wanted to touch on touch on one more thing. So, I I read that you uh, in one of your blog posts that it's you find it very hard to focus, and to me that's really surprising because I would imagine that uh, someone who's able to work on so many different things is able to focus in right. Like, okay, now it's my time to write the book. I'm going to focus in on that. Now it's time to work on my agency. We have the agency. I'm going to focus on that. When I'm going to write, I'm going to focus on that. Um, how are you able to if if you if you struggle with with you know getting focused um or staying focused what sort of hacks or you know like how are you able to stay focused on all of these different things if it's not something that comes natural to you i don't know if i did say that did i say that i struggled to focus i mean I didn't, I should have written the source down from somewhere, but I, I read it somewhere, but maybe it's just that like focus doesn't come easy to you. I don't know. I'm going to have to, now I'm going to have to go know. and like look this up where I came, where I wrote this I down from. I'd say I'm so you would say it. that it comes, that it comes easy to you, like being, staying focused. It comes fairly easy because I'm really strict with myself about what I'm doing at the time and about not doing anything else at the time. So like if I, go to when I train I'm, I'm training I'm not like checking my emails in between sets or anything like that and when I'm working I'm working and I'm not like being distracted and I put my phone on airplane mode a lot of the time like my goal is 50% of my waking hours I'm on airplane mode because I think it's loads better and I want to batch stuff and I never want anyone to think that they can contact me and I'll I'll respond straight away um the not that long ago I was planning my sister's um, bachelorette party with a friend and or with, with one of her friends and and I went for a nap on a Sunday and I woke up and I had 29 missed calls and I was like what the hell has happened and it turned out that I just hadn't responded in a whatsapp group message and everyone needed to know the date and I was like no <laughs> this is not how I'm operating this is not how anyone should operate and I really hate the idea that we have to be responding to stuff really quickly and on it all the time so so yeah I'm pretty I'm pretty good at focusing I think because I'm so strict with myself so yeah I don't know if that was if that was me that wrote that or if it was, I don't know. But I, I think about it a lot, I guess is what I'm saying. Have you always been that way? Like, is that something that you've maybe like trained in or is that just part of your personality for as long as you remember? I think I just notice a lot what happens when people don't focus. And I'll notice, I just look at, I look around me and I look at other people and I'm, I'm just always thinking, oh, that's interesting. And the the whole like bumping into a lamppost when you're walking and, looking at your phone just makes me think why would you ever walk and look at your phone at the same time <laughs> and then I guess it's the same thing in the gym like you you go into any given gym and you'll see a lot of people there scrolling Instagram wondering why they're not getting any stronger yeah and so I'm quite against that I just think well anyone else can do whatever they want to do but I don't I don't want to do it for me I think that it would be a really bad idea to think that you want a certain outcome and then do the exact opposite to getting that outcome. 
I will say that drives me crazy at the gym is like when like especially I need to use that machine and the dude's like scrolling Tinder and I I just it just drives me crazy because I'm like, okay, get up. Like let me let me use that. Like come on. Uh so I, I totally I totally understand that. I trained at a really amazing gym in Austin called Atomic Athlete and they have signs everywhere, no phones on the gym floor. And they've even got a sign in the bathroom. So they've got a picture of Arnie up, as all good gyms do. And it said something about, you know, when he said the two best things in life are humping and pumping. No, and they've annotated never, what is it? <laughs> the, the two <laughs> best things are what? Humping and pumping. Oh, like pumping, pumping and pumping. Okay, all right. Yeah, yeah, so it's like a kind of famous Arnie quote. But the gym has put an asterisk and they've put, neither of these two things involve a cell phone. <laughs> put your phone away. I love that. I love that. Well, I uh, that's a great way to wrapping up on uh, uh, you know on, on that quote. So, uh, Jody, let people know. Uh, I'm very excited about the book. I believe it's out already, right? It's published. So if if they can't, they can pre buy it. But I think it's out already. So where can people find it? Uh, where can they get a copy? Everything about the book is at tenyearcareer.com. There is a quiz that you can take to see where you are in your ten-year career. It comes with a companion course. There's lots of stuff around it. And then I'm at jodiecook.com. So J-O-D-I-E-C-O-O-K. And then I'm on all the social medias. You, you just type in my name, you'll find me. And then feel free to say hey. Perfect. Well, we're going to have links to all of them in the show notes. So uh, don't feel like you guys have to remember it. Just head on over there and you can click that. Uh, but Jody, thank you so much again for taking the time to do this. Uh, this was super fun. Thank you.